If you've listened to Ezra Klein talk about AI recently, you might recall his thought that the world 10 or 15 years from now might look unrecognizable. Whether they think it's for good or bad, a lot of people are quite convinced that AI is going to bring about a fundamental shift in society, the likes of which we haven't seen before. It feels plausible that if we could develop systems whose intelligence, whose ability to accomplish tasks exceeded our own, the opportunities might be limitless in and out of the economic sphere. But I want to posit to you that in 10 or 15 years, things might not look as different from today as you might think if you take Ezra and others who agree with him seriously. My guests today, Arjun Ramani and Jungdong Wang, wrote a fantastic essay for our magazine titled Why Transformative Artificial Intelligence is Really, Really Hard to Achieve. That's two reallys. In this essay, they assemble the best arguments they've seen for why transformative AI, defined by its measurable impact on the economy, will, at the very least, be a lot slower than many narratives will admit. I wanted to dig a little bit further into their case to discuss how they see things right now and to consider a few counter-arguments to their main points. You'll hear a lot of me agreeing with them because I found many of their arguments well put. But I and they would love to hear your opinions and pushback. If you have thoughts on the article, its broader ideas, anything we said in this episode, please do leave us a comment. This is The Gradient Podcast, and I am your host, Daniel Bashir. If you enjoy these episodes, you can follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast episode. You can also follow us on Substack to get regular notifications whenever we release a new article, newsletter, or podcast episode. You can also find our online magazine at thegradient.pub, where we regularly publish essays by the sorts of people I interview on the podcast. And finally, if you enjoy the episode, it would mean a great deal to us all if you'd consider leaving us a review on whatever podcast player you're using to listen to this episode. It helps more listeners like you find what we're doing and helps us bring in more interesting guests for you to listen to. But now, without further ado, Arjun Ramani and Jungdong Wang. So Arjun, Jungdong, I read your essay that you two wrote for us very recently, this why transformative artificial intelligence is really, really hard to achieve. That's two reallys there. And this was an incredibly well-structured set of arguments that I think brought together a lot of different perspectives. And I wanted to get together with you both, I think, to delve a little bit deeper into how you two think about some of these issues. But as always, I like to begin with my guest backgrounds. So I'd love to hear about you two, what you do, how you got interested in AI in the first place, and maybe how you began thinking about some of the questions that you two tackled in this article. Well, first off, thanks for having us on, Daniel. It's great to be here. 
Um, so I'm Arjun. I'm a journalist. I write for The Economist in London. Uh, so I'm our global business and economics correspondent. So I cover tech, finance, and economics all around the world. Recently, that's been a lot of AI. Um, so I really come to this conversation from an economic art standpoint. So when I was in middle school, I started reading Martyr Revolution. Um, you know, it's a way a lot of people get into economics. Uh, this is Tyler Cowen's blog. He's a professor at George Mason. And, you know, he has this great book that came out, I think, in 2011 called The Great Stagnation, which basically, uh, you know, made the provocative point that, uh, you know, growth might actually be slowing down if you compare the time past post the 1970s to the decades before that. Maybe the Internet and uh, software aren't um, as big of a deal as we thought they were. And uh, when I got to Stanford, which is where I did my undergrad, uh, this created a bit of cognitive dissonance because, you know, everyone was talking about how, uh, you know, software and AI were going to, you know, revolutionize the world. Um, and so there's, there's one other idea that maybe provided a bit of a, a, a possible reconciliation uh, for this, and that's the idea of the productivity J-curve from Eric Brynjolfsson, who I, I later studied under. And, and basically the point is maybe right now we're in the downward sloping part of the J, which is where we're investing, we're using up our resources uh, to adopt a new technology like AI, but eventually we'll hit the upward sloping part and we'll, we'll experience a growth boom. And so, you know, I was uh, captivated by these various ideas, which caused me to study them more. I ended up wanting to learn more of the technical aspects. So I ended up, uh, you know, doing a master's in CS, focusing on AI. And I uh, helped one of my professors start what I think was the, the first econ of AI class at Stanford. Um, and then when I became a journalist at The Economist, you know, naturally I continued thinking about these things. Uh, in the last year, I've been writing a lot about them. Um, and so that uh, kind of made this piece sort of a, a natural output of all that, all that various work. Yeah, uh, thanks, Daniel, for having us on. Um, hi, everyone. I'm Zhengdong Wang, and I'm a research engineer at Google DeepMind. Uh, currently, I work on reinforcement learning, both from scratch and combining with uh, large pre-trained models, um, and especially uh, embodied artificial intelligence um, in simulation is the setting that I work on. Um, I would say my background in artificial intelligence is uh, relatively recent. I'm not someone who, from very young, knew that I was going to do computer science, much less uh, AI. Um, however, I, I think there's a tried-and-true pipeline of playing with Legos to then playing with Minecraft to then um, programming that I've gone through and a lot of people seem to have as well. And the skills that, that this teaches you um, that you can practice from very young is uh, things like like thinking about what is a good abstraction, um, building houses of cards in your head, and some would say even uh, rotating shapes in your head, um, alongside more prosaic things like um, not wanting to be in too many meetings and things like that. Um, in terms of uh, research, um, I knew uh, from college that I wanted to do research, and I had um, some really great opportunities in the astronomy department that got me interested in this. And uh, the default for doing research seemed to be um, going to graduate school, where it seemed like there people were doing the most research. Um, however, uh, that didn't feel quite right to me because um, graduate school is uh, can be very competitive and you have a lot of responsibilities that are not research. Some of them I wanted to do more than others. 
Um, plus, my uh, grades were not the best, and um, I also uh, majored in history, so it wasn't like I, I could use um, academic credentials to, to really get me into uh, a program that I thought I would um, really um, uh, f uh, develop uh, the best as, as a researcher in. Um, but at the same time, I was, uh, you know, still playing video games. And um, when I was in uh, college, DeepMind came out with um, the AlphaStar paper, which completely captured my imagination. I saw, uh, oh, look, these people are just like doing research and also having fun. And uh, in some sense, they're um, uh, professionally um, uh, being paid, uh, making a living on playing video games, right? This is, this is um, a problem that's very fun, but um, a, also a grand challenge in the field of artificial intelligence and um, uh, on the path to uh, very impactful and um, very intellectually satisfying research as well. Um, and so that's how I uh, initially uh, became interested in AI, while at the time, even though it wasn't as popular as it was now, was still always in the background. Um, but, but beyond that, um, I, f I feel like AI is a, is a, is a good fit for um, an, a general intellectual curiosity because it kind of encroaches on other fields for better or worse. Um, and in fact, I would say that anyone using their brain uh, thinking about problems is kind of doing research in intelligence, even if they're not building artificial intelligence. They're thinking about um, what is cognition, like uh, how, how do I think, um, how can I think better, and, and, and that sort of thing. And um, because uh, AI encroaches on these other fields, um, you can retain an, an idealism for being able to answer big questions, uh, you know, some that are um, too, too big to even approach in, in many fields. And uh, it reminds me of a tweet that uh, David Ha once tweeted um, that went something like, AI research is just applied philosophy. Um, and uh, that, that view sort of stuck with me uh, over time. So um, to me, AI is not just about publishing papers or programming. It's, it's like an excuse to venture into all these other topics and learn about them as well. We've talked a little bit about both your backgrounds, which are really interesting. How did you two meet? Yeah, it's, it's sort of funny, actually. We, we actually met in the woods. Um, we were on this uh, kind of summer camp thing for this uh, tech fellowship called uh, Interact. Um, and a very good friend of mine from college uh, Cohen Armstrong, he uh, told us like, oh, he's like, Arjun, you got to meet this guy. He's super cool. And he lives in London. And I, you know, I just moved to London. Um, so uh, he put us in touch. And then uh, I'll let uh, uh, Zheng Dong finish the, the story. Yeah, uh, su super fun. So like, um, I had just met Cohen too, um, you know, on, on the way over. So uh, it was like if if I had you know um, uh, sat somewhere else in the car that I wouldn't have uh, spent so long talking to Cohen and um, you know maybe wouldn't have uh, met Arjun um, for a while if ever. But we had uh, you know one one conversation in the woods, and then at the time Arjun was uh, uh, you know being being a journalist, traveling places, writing about uh, a lot of different places, and was like looking for places to crash for like half a week and right after um, the fellowship. And so I was like, oh, we just could, like, you can uh, stay on my couch for a bit. And then, like, we just, like, talked a lot for, uh, you know, two days, uh, got along really well, um, have been great friends ever since. And, you know, a lot of writing the piece was just, uh, we spent a lot of our time hanging out talking about AI, too. And we were like, oh, you know, um, writing the piece will be fun. And it will be an excuse to, you know, uh, hang out, um, talk more about AI and, you know, uh, uh, write a bit. Yeah, so we were actually on a, on a skiing trip and we were like, oh, wait, we feel like the rest of the world has like higher expectations for this technology than we do. Let's like formalize our thoughts. Um, 
and then it just sort of it, it came from there. Um, but yeah, no, working with Zengdong, it's basically just like hanging out with a good friend. So like, you know, it doesn't feel like work, right? It just feels like you're having a good time. <laughs> yeah, I uh, highly recommend collaboration. With friends, yes. <laughs> love it. I love the perspectives that you two bring in this article and your backgrounds. I, I love that articulation of AI as applied philosophy that you had, Zengdong. And it's interesting too. I guess, to square what is sort of going on right now. So maybe I'll, I'll lay out a little bit of groundwork for us to get going on this article and the arguments within it. Because right now we're at a point where for much of the general public, AI really started to come into the limelight, that classical story of everybody saw chat GPT and what could be done with it. And despite the fact that GPT-3, a little while before that, had made some headlines here and there, and I think that within the AI community, we kind of all saw this as a big thing. It wasn't until ChatGPT that I would go home and, and my dad would be talking about AI. It's a very different experience, I think. And I'm sure you two experienced this to an extent as well. And we kind of scored that with this history of well, there is this overarching narrative about AI. Demis Asabis has famously often talked about the fact that he thinks many of the scientific problems that he'd like to solve in his lifetime, why don't we just build something that is smarter than all of us and, and have it help us with these things? And so I find ourselves in this very interesting moment because a lot of the big players in AI, a lot of the people within AI, there is this kind of historical narrative of, well, we're at the edge of another great industrial revolution. And you have at once the people who really buy into this and then the people who are like, wait, we've said this every industrial revolution. We've said that things are not the same. And every time before this, things have been the same. And on the economic side too, very similar kind of back and forths going on. And so it's really interesting to see an article like yours where I think you're bringing some much needed clarity to what are the particular difficulties that we actually need to deal with, the particular hurdles that we have to go through in order to achieve something that could be seen as transformative economic growth. So maybe we can begin there with a little bit of setup. Your article is called Why Transformative Artificial Intelligence is Really, Really Hard to Achieve. So why don't we begin with that word transformative? What does that mean to you too? Yeah, I can, I can start on this. I think we're really, if we want to be precise, talking about uh, economic growth rates. Um, and so one of our motivating figures for this piece is, you know, taken out of uh, Bob Gordon, uh, his book, uh, The Rise and Fall of American Growth, which basically, you know, he has this cool chart, which basically shows the, the growth rate in, uh, you know, uh, GDP per capita. Um, so basically some measure of productivity um, over uh, the course of human history that we, we can make some reasonable judgment on the growth rate um, in the world's frontier economy. So it's really Britain um, up till, you know, maybe the 1900s and then uh, switches over to the U.S. And the the striking thing about the chart is it never, uh, the, the the time series, it never goes past 3% a year. Um, so it seems like, you know, at least in terms of the sustained growth rate, obviously there are some years where you, you know, uh, you get above that point. But um, if you were to kind of take the trend growth rate, you're really never able to beat this 3% barrier in the world's frontier economy. So it almost seems like, you know, it's just really hard to grow super fast. Um, but obviously now there are uh, some people who think, you know, we could get a big acceleration 
to that GDP growth rate, maybe something more like 10, 15, 20, 30. So I don't think there's like a specific threshold that you would you know, consider transformative. But, you know, I think a qualitatively big acceleration to that number would, would certainly pass our, our, our test. So a big question that we want to sort of tackle in this article and throughout this conversation then is what can enable that kind of acceleration that you're talking about, Arjun? What are the barriers that would limit it? And in maybe trying to answer that question, we could also have to look to why is it the case that the economic growth that we've seen historically has looked the way it does? I'm wondering if you could speak to either of you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, I think to, to, to really beat it, when, when you think about where does growth come from um, in the long run? Um, so, of course, you can get it from uh, you know, increases to the population that you have, capital stock, but really in the long run, it comes from improvements to technology. Um, and so that's why I think, and I think ZD can add more here, but AI people are very excited because maybe we can you know, automate the process or substantially improve the process of coming up with new technologies. Um, that would require, you know, automating the process of invention itself. And then you could increase that technology uh, uh, that you have access to really fast. And then, you know, you could see um, accelerations to your growth rate. Um, I think the reason why we, we haven't seen it, and I'm sure we're going to get we're going to get more and more into this throughout the whole conversation, because in a sense, the, the same reasons why we haven't been in the past are the same reasons. Many of them are the same reasons why we think uh, it's going to be very difficult for AI to be transformative anytime soon. Um, I think it broadly comes down to this idea of, of bottlenecking. So this idea that when you have an innovation um, and it does some things well, uh, that can improve, improve productivity quite a bit. But then the things that it can't do well kind of slow you down. Um, so I'll just give you one example. Um, so let's look at the last you know, 40, 50 years uh, with information technology, with robots in manufacturing. Manufacturing productivity has improved massively. Um, you know, share of U.S. employment in, in manufacturing has actually fallen a lot. Um, I think it's like 12% now when, you know, it's probably 20, 30% a few decades ago. And uh, some of that's outsourcing, but a lot of it is automation. But when you reduce the price of goods, so for example, buying a TV or um, buying a new car, all, all the, the relative prices of both those things have fallen, you know, what do you do with your extra money um, if you, I don't know, the price of a TV falls? You probably are not going to buy another TV. <laughs> so your demand is kind of satiated. Um, you're probably going to spend it on something else. Like maybe you spend it on, uh, you know, more medical care. Uh, maybe you spend it on, um, you know, more restaurants. And uh, it turns out there's this interesting thing where when you get more of the surplus from automating the production of some things, um, it, it just so happens that the other things that you, that you um, are spending money on, a lot of them happen to be services or very labor intensive. Um, and so th their productivity is actually not increasing. And so you kind of get slowed down at the macroeconomic level. Yeah, I want to add something on this uh, idea of setting up transformative and what transformative means in um, sort of a, a different part of uh, your original question, Daniel. So um, you mentioned this like really interesting uh, public perception thing that I agree we have to explain, which is on one hand, you have these uh, CEOs of really important labs saying this could change the world. This is like one of the most important problems that you could be working on right now. This is going to be really big. And at the same time, up until very recently, um, like your parents, my parents had not really known what, what, what I was sort of doing day to day. And then now they've also heard of ChatGPT and they've also used it. And uh, maybe to also push back on the idea that like all AI researchers knew that this thing was going to be coming. Remember that before ChatGPT, there was like 
a period of over a year where um, major labs were, were sitting on GPT-3 level chatbots internally. And maybe they still hadn't recognized like exactly how big ChatGPT would have been uh, were it released to the world. And so that's like a, a, a tension of like um, uh, perceived like transformativeness of AI from the people working on it that are supposed to know best or have the most insider information of how it's going to go. Um, and so in our piece, we, we also mentioned like some of the, the comments of uh, Sam and Demis that, that you mentioned to set this up, which is like, at some point in the past, both of them have said uh, something of the form of like, you can, you can solve intelligence, which um, is a very ambitious problem, but in some sense, easier than solving all of these other things that uh, encompass, you know, other difficult problems in other parts of human life and parts of the economy, that intelligence is, is somewhat easier. And once you solve this, you can sort of uh, very quickly make the jump to like solving everything else. And uh, in part of setting up the piece and like um, maybe uh, one of the, one of the things that we want to convey as, alongside bottlenecks as like a very important thing that um, you should take away if you're only to take away a few statements is that um, this like lunch isn't as free as it sounds. Like there's like a assumed free lunch from jumping from intelligence to everything else. But uh, we, we want to sort of recategorize that as like a bunch of the stuff that you thought fell under everything else actually falls under solving intelligence in the first place. And so um, transformation isn't, isn't so easily separated into like just AI or, or, you know, just this um, mathematical optimization problem that uh, then easily applies to everything else. Those are two really great points. And I'm glad you brought them up. The first one, of course, that it's not entirely true that everybody saw GPT-3 and was like, oh, this is going to change everything or saw something like ChatGPT coming up. Of course, we saw a lot of maybe divisiveness in the AI community at the time about where this was going. Is this something that seems like real intelligence, whatever you want to call it? The famous stochastic parrots criticism, Jan LeCun's arguments at the time about, well, these systems lack grounding. And so they can't, quote unquote, know things or they can't make really truthy sounding statements about what goes on in the world. People would take clips from him saying things like this. And then now, years later, they're like, wait, now ChatGPT can say things about the world that sound true to us. And so, yeah, we did have a lot of that divisiveness. And the the second point you're bringing up, though, is also really valuable. Um, and I guess where it kind of makes sense to go with this at this stage is we've kind of circled around this question about... Is there something fundamentally different about AI? And that kind of narrative that you're bringing up at the end of what you just said, Zheng Dong, is that the idea that intelligence is something special or not special, I, I think that I'm starting to see a little bit more pushback among AI researchers on this idea that intelligence is really the most important key thing that is going to unlock everything you could possibly want to do. You two have already brought up, and I think we'll see more examples of types of labor that involve the need for, for physical labor and, and other sorts of things that are also important. But it's also interesting just to view this kind of artifact of a lot of the history we've seen up till today as starting to prioritize the mind, the intellect, right, as sort of the key thing, <clears throat> excuse me. The key thing that differentiates humans from non-human animals and this sort of thing 
And in a lot of ways, it does feel like that kind of narrative we've constructed in our heads about the intellect as the key thing about what makes humans human could be seen as sort of a, a part of our cultural grammar or cult- cultural logic, if that makes sense. And so when you really, really buy into that, then it only naturally seems if you can automate away intellectual tasks, whatever the hell that means, if you can empower people to be smarter, uh, then the smarter you get, the more you're going to be able to do. And suddenly everything you could possibly want to do opens up. So I, I think that's a really helpful way to, to frame this all. Yeah, um, I want to touch on this uh, uh, interesting like separation, um, maybe divisiveness in the community of people who believe that the capabilities that we have right now are real AI and those who um, uh, find the, the flaws in it or the, the ways that um, the intelligence that, that we see in these artificial machines that we create don't match human intelligence. And, and I think that's a, that's a really important distinction also to draw for the piece because um, while you have uh, uh, people who are, who are motivated by, by different reasons for working on AI, um, maybe they, they sort of talk past each other or a ship's passing in the night if um, we're not clear on uh, what are we trying to achieve in the end. And so for our piece, um, uh, we came up with this definition of like economic transformation that, that Arjun really uh, succinctly and um, uh, explained really well um, that we think can sort of um, skirt us around having to enter this mire of like what is real intelligence and what's not, um, even, even though that's like a debate that's like really interesting to me and I'm sure to all of us, um, where uh, there, there are maybe some people working on AI who are um, uh, got into it before it was, uh, you know, all hot and um, uh, profitable and um, are motivated by solving the, the intellectual question as, as like a priority and others who are um, uh, also uh, more motivated by the um, impact that it has on society and like how many people can help. And um, maybe if you have to uh, do a sort of like hacky thing science wise by um, just like pasting on some or duct taping on some, um, you know, uh, component that um, maybe like won't get published, but will uh, increase your evaluation, like that's a totally worthwhile um, thing to be working on. And um, the uh, d- uh, you know divisiveness between um, these two motivations can lead to very different um, conclusions about what is real AI, what is um, general cons- uh, considered general AI, and what is uh, transformative. And so um, we uh, love that debate, and um, uh, yeah, just for the piece, want to sort of um, separate those two motivations so that we c- we can be clear about what we're um, trying to uh, not uh, dispute and what we're trying to say will actually happen in the physical world. Yes, I I like that the framing you two give allows us to abstract away this question, because I think the whole what is actual intellect question is much deeper than just AI can say anything about. And I think that really forces us into a back and forth where, as you said, often there are ships passing in the night. We can't come to anything substantive, I think, in terms of a conclusion. So really framing this as an economic question, what is the practical impact? that all this, whatever you think about it, whether you think that it's grounded, whether it possesses actual intellect, um, that allows us to say something, I think, a little bit more rigorous. One point that's worth stressing is this idea of independence. Um, so I think, you know, in, in this essay, we uh, provide a bunch of different examples of bottlenecks for why, you know, it's not guaranteed that technical progress um, you know, will continue without bound um, social bottlenecks, you know, around, for example, in regulation for why deployment isn't guaranteed. 
and then finally kind of more fundamental economic bottlenecks for types of labor that you mentioned earlier that are hard to, to, to automate. Um, I think, it, you know, in our thinking around this, um, actually a, a common response we get from a lot of people is that, yeah, we don't really believe your arguments, for example, on, in the technical section, we're like more bullish on AI progress, but we do b- believe your arguments in, in the social section. Maybe we sort of believe that your arguments in the economic section. I think the the, the framework we try to set up in the beginning um, around, you know, you kind of need all these things to come together at once um, for real economic transformation um, is, is then very powerful because then it means you can reject part of our essay and, and still accept the conclusion. Um, and, uh, I think that maybe makes it more palatable to more people and then also gets us some legway even for people who think we are going to solve intelligence. Well, there's still something for you. That is a good way of putting it. And I think that buttresses your argument, maybe just for somebody who's listening to this and is a little bit skeptical. Intuitively, it does seem right that the technical, the social, the economic components are pretty independent in the way they present bottlenecks. But if somebody is listening to this and still maybe just wants a little bit of a walkthrough of, okay, why is it that we need to deal with all of these factors independently? Maybe there's some intertwining there that somebody could imagine. Do you want to just walk us through very briefly the argument for A, why these bottlenecks are independent, and then B, why you need to solve all of them for transformative economic growth? Yeah, so um, I'll, I'll just like... Uh, uh you know, uh, call out to Matt Clancy's really nice piece that um, we cited in the introduction and was one of the big inspirations for writing the piece. He gives a a very, very simplified example of an economy with um, a bunch of different steps. And uh, Arjun also um, mentioned a few examples of this in the um, uh, economics papers that were published before, where um, if you have a a bunch of different steps, you know, you could call them technical arguments, economic arguments, social arguments, or you could just say like, oh, you're doing like a class project and somebody needs to, you know, do a literature review and somebody else needs to like pipette some chemicals and then somebody else needs to like do some writing at the end. Um, All of these steps, um, if uh, you buy the idea of bottlenecks in general, um, you only have to buy some of the uh, like steps being hard to do or um, actually being bottlenecks to see that um, that will slowly take over the entire process. So if every single step is fast, except for the pipetting, because um, you can't ask a large language model to pipette for you, it's like not very good at fine motor control, then pretty much your entire class project just becomes like everybody pipetting and, and that's what stops it. And uh, this is like adaptable to like what you actually believe, right? Like, let's say you believe that, um, oh, robotics will be really easy. And so pipetting will be really easy. But actually, like large language models won't be able to write a report of the quality that your your teacher wants. And, and that's the bottleneck that you believe, but not the other ones. Well, slowly that takes up all of your economy, all of your class project too. And you're in the same place at the end of the day. Yeah, this is a good way to put it. And I think also maybe something analogous can be said. And of course, you make this point in your article about somebody might come to this debate, this question, wondering, well, why couldn't transformation or enablement in a localized section of the economy or a localized type of labor produce the same transformative effects we're talking about here? And it does seem like in the past, we've seen kind of arguments for this sort of thinking. Mark Andreessen famously wrote that software will eat the world any more recently has been very bullish on the potential for AI to, I think in his words, save the world, although that's 
a slightly, slightly different way of, of saying what he's trying to say there. But the fact that, again, we have different notions of the types of labor and the economy, and really for transformative economic growth, you want to unlock all of those and the fact that they're kind of intertwined, I think that that's, that's pretty helpful because just the idea that, well, we can really do all of the knowledge work we want to do. The coders can get a lot faster at coding and that sort of thing. That does enable us to build more software, sure. But I liked the maybe way that Arjun had put it earlier in terms of, well, if this section of the economy becomes much more productive, like if we're talking about software, the price of software suddenly gets a lot cheaper. I am a single person, or if I am a single business, my need for certain types of software well, that's going to be limited by the need for software in like other sections of my business or as a single person, I only need to have so much software to enable myself in productivity and enjoyment. Like I don't need to buy a second Netflix subscription. I already have one. And so, of course, that money is, as you said, going to go into these other sections of the economy. Yeah, I think that's precisely right. And, you know, just to give a few more examples, agriculture is actually a really good one. So I was just looking this up earlier. So only something like 10 to 20% of the cost of food when you go grocery shopping is the cost of, you know, growing the raw ingredients, the, the actual farming. And at, at a restaurant, it's actually more like, you know, 2 3%. That's the cost of agriculture. It's because agriculture is so highly automated now, right? So something like 1% of the U.S. labor force, um, you know, actually uh, works in farming. And I think uh, 200 years ago, it would be more like 50%, right? So, you know, we've automated so much of this. We've gotten so much more productive. Uh, and basically what's happened is the value in the supply chain has gone to the bottlenecks, right? Um, so that's all the various intermediaries that are transporting the stuff around, the people who are at the grocery store or in a restaurant, a huge share of it would go to the labor costs, the people who are serving you, the restaurant owners and so forth. And, you know, there's a tendency as you get richer, uh, people are more likely to spend on restaurants, right? Uh, which are very labor intensive. So I think, you know, that's an example of within the food industry, we've had massive productivity gains over the past few centuries. And, you know, you might even argue that we've reached the end of history with agriculture because, you know, we're just so good at farming, just 1% of our um, of our labor force. But then all these other um, parts of the supply chain sort of take up all the value. And I think that sort of idea really does show up everywhere. Um, so this is an example where we're looking at it within a sector. But as we mentioned before, it can apply across sectors, you know, it can apply within a given job across different tasks. Um, but the general idea is when you get more productive at one task in a process or one sector of an economy, and uh, when the other tasks or sectors are, you know, inelastic and they're, they're really important, um, they take up a greater share of value. And it's worth mentioning that I, I think that idea of inelasticity is pretty important. Um, or if you want to put it in lay English, you know, the things that are, are necessary and hard to substitute for, you know, you're willing to pay for it even when the price goes up. I think that's a, a pretty core assumption, but I think it shows up everywhere. And that's really what we're trying to provide more examples of throughout the essay. And just to give one more example uh, of, a, of a bottleneck of a different flavor, um, something like nuclear fission, which, you know, we figured out in the 20th century, but then we kind of blocked ourselves by, by banning or highly regulating it uh, in many countries. And it's kind of funny, France is a, ironic exception to this, um, uh, but it's a different type of bottleneck. It's not the same style as agriculture or goods and services. Um, it's a regulatory bottleneck, 
But the key point, um, you know, as we were saying earlier, is these are sort of independent. I mean, I don't think they're completely independent. For example, if the technology is really good, you know, maybe you can uh, uh, make arguments that convince the rest of society, hey, you should really adopt this stuff. And maybe it's really good that it solves multiple bottlenecks at a time. Uh, but, you know, they're at least partially independent. Yeah, could, could I pile on with like just one more silly example, which is, uh, you know, um, Arjun and I have been saying the words bottlenecks to each other like all the time um, over the course of writing this piece. And in, in the uh, uh, quest to practice what I preach, I was like, hmm, um, what are the sort of bottlenecks in like my own research? And like, how should I change my own research as a result of this? And I found that it uh, this actually gave a lot of clarity for like, why certain practices that I um, had implemented or wanted to implement were like not actually um, having as much effect that I wanted to. So for a long time, for example, I've wanted to like, um, you know, completely switch over to Vim and then like watching people with all their like Vim bindings, like uh, fingers flying over the keyboard. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to be 10 times more productive. Um, and, and at some point in high school, I had actually like switched over to using a Dvorak keyboard and, you know, my typing got faster and I was like, yeah, this is great. But I uh, had not thought too hard about like why my like research productivity had not multiplied by the same amount as like my typing speed. Well, it's because like I'm not bottlenecked by how fast I type. It's like by um, I'm actually bottlenecked by like how um, fast I can come up with good experiments and like um, like do math correctly or stuff like that. And so um, in just like even even thinking about it applied to your own personal life. Um, just just increasing one thing, even if it's a very important thing, many times is not going to result in that kind of um, same progress across the board. This is great. I think we've pumped a lot of important intuitions about some of the main questions somebody might have coming into this article. Why are all of these different facets to unlocking economic growth independent in the first place? Why are they all necessary? Why are bottlenecks independent? Is AI actually a different thing here? And so with all of that in our minds, I'd love to dive into some of the specific arguments that you two lay out in this article from the different angles. And here, I think we should probably begin with the technical arguments about what are the hardest problems in AI and some of the major technical hurdles to unlocking the kind of transformation in different sectors of the economy and in different sorts of productivity that it can. Yeah, so um, we, we mentioned a, a bunch of things in this section, but I, I guess it's an, important to note that um, among uh, all AI researchers, there, there's, of course, a lot of disagreement on which of these problems are the most important. And, um, you know, many people believe that many problems are, are not actually problems at all. And so maybe um, in a sort of like a, an also intuition pump way, if I had to just like pick one thing that's like single biggest obstacle that is a, a starting point for us to get um, uh, off on this conversation, um, it's just robotics. And uh, we put this at, at the top of our piece too, where um, we think that even if you believe that uh, robotics progress is um, going to be very fast, and um, there have been a, actually a, a couple of papers since we came out with our piece that, that indicate that um, progress in robotics is, is uh, you know, still uh, chugging along after um, the uh, revolution in large language modeling, that it's still very, very far away from being able to um, for, for us to be able to confidently say that fine motor control robotics, like changing the physical world is not going to be the bottleneck to um, changing the economy. So um, while you do have progress in, uh, you know, implementing large models, uh, vision language models into robots, and um, this is like new and exciting and um, things that we haven't 
done before. This is still, you know, um, um, a, a long time away from, uh, you know, uh, actual uh, products that you can sell to people that are reliable, that can, you know, um, uh, pick fruit or, you know, uh, brush your teeth or, uh, you know, something like that. Um, teach children to swim is a, is a great example from um, uh, Ted Sanders and uh, uh, Alan Foyer that, uh, from a piece that we cited as well. The examples you're citing that we've seen recently, certainly the robotics transformer that we've seen come out and a lot of related things. We've seen stuff out of Boston Dynamics. It's impressive. But to what you're saying, we are still at a stage where it feels a lot like kind of toy problems in the physical world that we're dealing with, right? Kind of simple instructions or, of course, in, in, in cases like Robotics Transformer or, or other examples we've seen recently, there were points where integrating vision language models, you were able to ask maybe a robotic arm to complete a task, and it could sort of break it down and figure out what it needs to do. But to what you said, this is far and away from something you would need to be able to actually sell to people to enable that kind of productivity. And so I, I think there are a lot of different sort of technical challenges that come together in this, but that, that does seem like a good place for us to start. Well, I'll add another point here that's that's about robotics, but also I think is, is a broader point about the challenges of, you know, deployment in high stakes settings and, you know, where you get your data from, which is, you know, maybe the next technical bottleneck. Um, uh, and I think, you know, it's well known now that, you know, we're reaching the, the limits of what's on the, the, the internet in terms of high quality data. Um, and so, you know, that's why all the, all the, the labs are, you know, trying to get new data, um, paying companies like Scale and Surge to, to help them find it. Or, um, you know, that's, that's also why a lot of people are very bullish on synthetic data. In a sense, it's, you kind of have to have synthetic data work if you want to, you know, scale models as fast as some of the labs are planning, because I think just humans labeling it uh, uh, in bespoke ad hoc ways is probably not going to be enough. Um, we don't really yet know uh, if synthetic data is, is, is going to work anytime soon. I think ZD can say, uh, Zheng Dong can say more about that. Um, but I think the, 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 the reason why this is related to robotics is I think in a lot of settings, you know, the, the type of data you want isn't really written down in, in, in language. You need to kind of deploy a model into a real world setting and get feedback from interacting in the world. I mean, this is obviously the case for self-driving, uh, and that's actually a really good example to motivate this. Um, and the, the, the key idea is, is when you want to learn by doing uh, you need to put it in a real world setting because the, the, like the dimensionality of the real world is just, you know, maybe so much higher than what you could create in some simulation. I guess that is a that is, a, you know, uh, an assumption that maybe has played out to be true in, in the case of self-driving. Um, so that's why it's been so incremental. Right. Like, I think um, there's a there's a table in the in the Ted Sanders paper where, you know, has like, you know, 30 odd predictions of when we're going to get self-driving and every single one of them was wrong. Um, and it's also pretty funny. I think like 10 of them are from Elon Musk or something. Um, but uh, and I think that shows a challenge where you have to kind of incrementally deploy the, the, the self-driving car into, into very, very slightly more complex situations, get data, um, you know, refine your model and, and, and continue. And that just acts, it doesn't necessarily mean the problem is not solvable. It just means it takes way longer than you would think. Um, and this is a way in which this interacts with, um, you know, humans, uh, you know, societies, governments, they don't really want you to deploy things where, when they're going to make mistakes, especially when it's a robot making a mistake um, in a high stakes setting. So you kind of have to go inch by inch and it can take you decades, maybe even centuries to, to, to do uh, some of these things and cover all your edge cases.
And, and the, the last thing to add on, on the self-driving example, I think there's a lot of excitement now, uh, you know, with Cruise and, and Waymo. I think Cruise is, you know, done pretty well in SF and is now expanding to other cities. Uh, and, and maybe they'll um, start, uh, you know, charging soon. Um, and I think the excitement is actually a little bit over-optimistic. I think it's, um, you know, it's, you know, I rode a cruise several times when I was in SF recently. I think th- maybe something like two-thirds of the rides I had um, required a manual override because um, it hit some kind of edge case. Um, and that just raises the cost, right, where it makes it less financially feasible um, to, to deploy at scale. And this was in San Francisco, so it wasn't even in the more bespoke, strange environments that it hasn't really been traded on. So, uh, and, and I think one particular uh, example, which... I'll just give quickly because I think it's pretty funny is, you know, there was a, a line of cars, um, you know, in front of the San Francisco giant stadium and um, you know, the, the, it, it was pretty high traffic and the, the cruise was trying to turn into the, uh, into the traffic. And normally the way this happens in the real world is, you know, you kind of make eye contact with someone and you play a game of chicken with them where you start, you know, you butt the front of your car up a little bit and then you're like, Hey, I'm going to go like, you know, I have more, guts than you do and then uh eventually someone lets you go but the cruise is not going to do that it can't make eye contact with people it doesn't have body language um and it's risk averse so it just kind of stays there right and and this type of thing is is not uncommon um where i think you know there's maybe two equilibria with self-driving and traffic and one is the the no human one and the other is the all human one and it's just not clear to me yet whether the the mixed setting actually works um and i think so i think people have gone a little bit too over optimistic about uh, of self-driving um, again, but we'll see. <laughs> so that's a, that's a, that's a diffusion or adoption ad- adoption hurdle, which we'll get into more later. I, I'm definitely not going to derail the uh, podcast with um, more stories of uh, self-driving, but I'm I'm actually from Chandler, Arizona, so uh, you know I've I have a lot of Waymo stories, Waymo testing stories. Uh, to to add more on this uh, data thing from like a recently published um, research perspective, um, in addition to like all all the great uh, economic you know um, market thing uh forces that arjun brought up is like since our piece came out we we do have a better understanding of like when synthetic data works when um generating our own data or self-play works and uh, uh some some you know summarizations and theorization of um when this happens so specifically uh uh davis blalock who does a lot of great summarization of um ai papers um suggests that maybe if you just uh filter as long as you have a good idea of what your generator distribution is and what your target distribution is, this could, um, you know, uh, include enough information so that your uh, generated data is still good enough to to improve on. But I, I would say maybe um, uh, just as another like tempering expectations on the entire paradigm of like self play uh, of synthetic data in some form is um, this idea of like. Uh, you take examples in the past in like smaller problems, and and now when research moves on to like tackling bigger problems, and you have bigger data sets and bigger models, like uh, you you sort of expect to see scientists um, have baselines and um, take what works in the past and you know reapply it to this new situation, right? That's like a that's like a safe thing to do, um, you know, in incremental but still very impactful and. Um, uh, controlling for things that that you know uh, will work, and then trying one new thing at a time. And so, um, in in this, I, I I won't give too many details, but but I'll just like give some facts that you know you can like go home, sleep on, talk about with your family at the dinner table. Which is like uh, in in uh, 2016, you had um, AlphaGo, right? And there was a lot of behavior cloning on expert data, and then uh, it beat the world champion. So you know this thing works pretty well. 
after that, you had uh, AlphaZero, and this beat the um, then current uh, world number one in like a series of show matches in China. And the the, the difference with um, AlphaZero and later algorithms was that you completely cut off the you know human data. Um, part of it, and it was like completely trained from self-play, which, which in a sense is like completely generated synthetic data, right? And um, uh, uh, was like even better, and um, you're you're able to to achieve even higher performance. Um, and then and then you know DeepMind moves on to a harder problem, which is like StarCraft, much much harder than than Go, um, being uh, you know partial observable and and all of those great things. And um, you have AlphaStar, which reaches grandmaster level based on a lot of uh, human grandmaster data, like a lot of human StarCraft games, um, and then and then after that, you know, I I, I just present to you with the fact that that uh, DeepMind has not not published um, um, the, the the dog that didn't bark here, and uh, I'm I'm really can't like go into details on on what kind of research in StarCraft or um, what what kind of uh, uh, research in this paradigm that is continuing to go on, but um, you would you would maybe think that. Uh, one like obvious thing to do would be Alpha Star Zero, which is um, you know StarCraft with uh, no human data. And if this paradigm were to apply then to the real world and um, with uh, large language models, um, with these internet scale data sets and um, internet scale sort of uh, applications with huge uh, economic impact, here's like a like a free idea for all the other labs. Like you know um, DeepMind hasn't published it yet. You know uh, you could totally do it if you believe in this paradigm and you believe in um, compute and data generation being enough. I just want to add, um, I, I also have to give credit to um, uh, Tom McGrath, uh, you know, one of my mentors for originally like like bringing this up. And so, um, uh, you know, uh, like uh, all the other things in the piece, um, most of them are, are, are not, uh, you know, origin and minds, uh, complete original idea. You know, uh, we're, we're just trying to collate the best arguments that we think. This is a good way of putting everything and... I guess as we move up the scale towards real-world capabilities, many things we might want to do, even when you're in the realm of playing partially observable, sufficiently complicated games, it does feel like we already have a bit of that process knowledge that you two have brought up here. It does feel, at least intuitively, pretty hard for me to communicate everything there is to know about playing a game like StarCraft and maybe synthetic data and self-play if you really believe it at enough scale could get you there but again as as you have kind of pointed out where is that alpha star zero we just haven't seen it quite yet maybe it's just a matter of scale but that kind of remains to be seen as we as we ascend this hierarchy though to real world you know physical things we might want to do it does feel like a lot of what humans find valuable in them what we come to them for a lot of that is not exactly something we can articulate in knowledge. You kind of have maybe the example of a violinist. I know I've seen very comical videos of these ro- like violin playing robots in the past couple of years. And it's like, yeah, I can kind of, you know, get a couple of notes. Maybe you can play like Twinkle Twinkle Little Star with some level of, of competency and sort of get the notes right. But that is a totally different experience from watching like Hilary Hahn or something performed the Sibelius where you find yourself just like transfixed and kind of unable to do anything because of how affecting that is. The ability to communicate that feeling between human beings and to evoke something in that kind of way. I know this is sort of an artistic thing, which 
is maybe a little bit different from, you know, the more economically oriented tasks we might talk about. But I do think that is a really good example of something where it's just hours and hours and hours of doing the same thing over and over again, tuning, you know, like the micro movements, but then on top of getting the intonation of everything correct, figuring out, well, how the hell do I play this really hard piece and get everything right, but then also like communicate something emotive with it. And that just seems, that always sticks in my mind as an example of something that you, you can't just tell somebody how to, how to play the Sibelius well. This is something that, that really kind of has to be done over time. And so I think that that feels like one of the more important things to focus on here. I agree. And I, and I think I'm jumping the gun a bit here, but, you know, the example of, you know, the power of, of seeing another human, uh, you know, do performance art, I think is, is actually quite a critical, uh, you know, bottleneck, if you will, um, because, you know, there's a there's a famous paper from William Baumol, who's a Nobel Prize winning economist, that we actually use to motivate, uh, you know, this entire piece. And he talks about uh, the Schubert String Quartet as an example of something that hasn't changed that much over the last 200 years, um, but the real price of it has actually gone up over time. It's the same quartet, same people doing the same thing, but it costs more, adjusted for inflation, um, and we we are still willing to pay for it, and. Uh, you know, the, another example I really like that's more topical is like Taylor Swift concert, which might be the most, the highest grossing tour ever. Um, you know, we, we care about these uh, human in-person experiences. I think there's a more provocative point here, which is, you know, maybe parts of the world, uh, you know, for example, uh, upper middle class people and above in, in, in you know, uh, Europe and in, in America and Japan are already sort of post-material <laughs> and, and uh, you know, they already spend a huge share of their income on experiences and services where uh, what, it, what they're paying for really is, you know, scarce social experiences uh, like a live concert. And um, insofar as, you know, we uh, allocate higher status to other humans doing things than, than machines, um, which I think is probably going to hold true in the, the at least the medium term and probably is a good thing frankly even in the long term in terms of like social relations not breaking down uh you know then that that's a very very fundamental bottleneck right if we're literally paying for other humans to do things because they are human you can't really beat that with a machine right and that is very directly tied to that process knowledge and the improvement in competence and capability right to use the examples you set out Today, we look at a Taylor Swift con a concert versus like 10 years ago. She has obviously become far more capable as both a singer and a performer. I mean, you just look at what was going on in the Eras tour. I'm pretty sure I saw a clip of her like swimming in the concert she gave in Arizona. And just imagining like what it takes to put together a show like that, to have the stamina and all of the other things that goes into it. That is really directly tied with that process knowledge of, of performance art. It's not just like, well, we're paying more for it because, I mean, she is obviously more famous than she was back then. So that that is, you know, certainly a part of it. But the skill and the thing that you were actually seeing on the stage, too, has grown so much more as well. Yeah. And how much audience feedback will you get if you deploy AI Taylor Swift to, like, practice stage presence? Indeed. <laughs> I think this is a, a good set of things on on some of the technical arguments that we've talked about. And at this point, I'd, I'd love to move on to 
some of the social arguments. And there is really a lot to say here, I think, about questions surrounding AI regulation, how this could be different or some different from or similar to the past. But uh, I, I just love for maybe you two to kind of introduce how you think about this section of arguments. Yeah, this is a this is a tough one because you know it's obviously forecasting you know human response to new technology, uh, and we're kind of at that inflection point right now. And frankly, a lot of um, you know people can change that and shape that. So so it is it's a bit dangerous. But I think history history is useful here. Um, you know, the broad point I think is technologies tend to diffuse quite slowly. Um, you know, it takes a long, long time um, to, to see the effects of new general purpose technologies. So, you know, I'll give the example, you know, maybe a few examples to motivate this. Um, if you look at the tractor, for example, it was invented back in, you know, the late 1800s, uh, 30 years later, by 1920, only 4% of farms in, in the U.S. had adopted them. By 1950s, it was still around 20%. Uh, the two big general purpose technologies of the past two centuries, electricity and information technology, it took, you know, maybe 30, 40 years to get to uh, 50% adoption across firms. And it, there are some reasons to believe that diffusion of new technology is actually slowing down. Um, so I, I wrote a piece for, for The Economist recently on this. Uh, we kind of walk through why, uh, you know, the, the return on invested capital, which is one measure of how productive firms are at using new technologies. Um, is actually diverging. So like the top firms are like really, really good at using new technologies, but the median firms, you know, in the middle of the country uh, that maybe, you know, you're not paying attention to in the news, they're actually falling way, way further behind. And why could that be? Well, one is growing regulation. Another is just, you know, it it seems like there are lots of, uh, you know, competitive barriers being erected. So if you're like a less productive firm, if you're a laggard, for example, uh, you're just not being competed away at the, at the same rate as you were before. And there's lots of kind of deeper reasons for that, but we don't need to go into, go into all of them. But, you know, the, the broad point is it, it just takes a long time for the impact to happen. Um, you know, the, the, the last example I'll give is, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff that if you look around, we could be doing better than we are right now, but we're not. And I think there's, it's, it's very hard for me to, um, uh, you know, believe why AI would be any different than that. Um, so if you look at the London Tube, you know, where Zendong and I are both in, in London, um, uh, and this is an example due to my colleague, uh, Cal Williams, uh, you know, it's been possible to automate the tube for a while, um, but we actually pay tube drivers more than medium wage. Uh, and there's basically no political chance that they that they actually do get automated. So I think like, you know, the presence of unions, the, pre- pre- uh, the presence of regulation can be a huge um, you know, barrier to new technologies getting adopted. You know, you look at nuclear energy or supersonic flight, uh, education, healthcare. The, the examples just kind of don't really, the list can keep going on, right? Um, and, and AI is going to be deployed in all these different industries. Um, why should we expect that uh, it'll be any different? Um, if you look at, uh, there's a recent Pew Research Center poll, uh, I find this quite uh, uh, interesting where uh, I think it was only like a third of people uh, I forget the exact number, but uh, it was it was very very small minority of people uh, were uh, positive or optimistic about AI. You know, thinking that the the benefits would outweigh the risks. So a lot of people are afraid of it. So you know, I I do think that that reduces the likelihood there'll be a really really quick adoption of the technology. 
Yeah, and, and quickly adding on to the diffusion lags, if, if you want to be like overwhelmed with examples, uh, Mike, Mike Webb, who is an economist who graciously gave us uh, comments on our piece since our piece came out, um, he's been on uh, 80,000 hours and, and uh, there you can hear him give like four hours of examples of, uh, you know, why, why this is hard, like all, exa more examples of adoption lag and, and things like, you know, um, electricity came out and uh, uh, like 30 years later, the like telephone operators, you know, the people who like, like move the wires to connect people like that employment peaked 30 years later. And it was not until like 1980 that the last person um, who had that job had that job, right. And so, um, yeah, uh, totally agree with everything Arjun said. And if you want more examples, um, you, you can get it. Yeah, the we've taken a long time to adopt things. Why should AI be any different question is important. And I, I think in a lot of ways, you could also read, well, AI is different, but maybe in an even more negative direction. You two have already brought out the idea that a lot of people do not feel super positive about AI prospects. And there's also this issue of trust and the fact that, you know, we don't always know everything that is going to come out from AI systems. And so especially in some of those high stakes contexts like healthcare, where for one these systems are already more likely to be regulated. But then for another, when you are entrusting things to a partially or even fully automated system, well, people, you know, are probably just not going to be down with that for a while, or a lot of people won't. Certainly, there are more people here and there who are a little bit more, you could say, forward thinking on this and believe, you know, it just matters that we get the outcomes. I don't care so much about interpretability, these sorts of things. But for many stakeholders, many users out there, there is, I think, for a while, probably going to be this visceral, well, something feels kind of off about this right now. Yeah, that, that, that's a great point. And I think the kind of dynamics of, of trust here matter a lot, especially in the settings like healthcare, like you mentioned. One last point I, I, I should mention, because um, it's probably going to be in some people's minds is, you know, to whether AI is different or not, like, you know, people just point to, oh, hey, ChatGPT was, you know, uh, until Threads, the fastest growing consumer application in history, right? Uh, you know, super fast uh, uh, adoption or diffusion. Um, and, and that's true in, in a very limited sense. And I guess this is where I would, uh, I don't think we should read too much into that. Um, so first of all, it, you know, peaked around 200 million monthly active users, if I, if I remember correctly. Uh, and it's now actually fallen by 20% in the last few months. Um, but second of all, I think the big productivity gains come from when you reorganize entire businesses or come up with entire, entirely new business models um, with the new technology. Uh, to, to the example that uh, Zhengdong gave from Mike Webb on uh, you know, uh, uh, switch operators for, for telephones, um, you, know, you, you can't just, once the technology exists, uh, doesn't necessarily mean a business will know how to use it. Uh, there's a lot of, I guess, complementarities or dependencies within the business. You have to rehire people who have like the skills to use the new technology. You have to like change your other processes. Um, it costs a lot, right? They're high fixed costs. And so like, you know, when I talk to businesses about whether they're actually adopting, uh, you know, uh, GPT, um, you know, a lot of them say they're interested. Uh, I think some surveys suggest only like a third of, you know, U.S. enterprises that are actually seriously like making an attempt, making investments and in doing this. But even the ones that are, it's not quite clear that they're going to get like massive gains. They're mostly doing things like, you know, automating customer service. And, and I'm pretty sure that at least for now, customer service automation 
is sort of like a, a welfare loss because I'm always trying to get around the, the automated customer, customer service agent because I always have some edge case and, you know, you want a human on the other, on the other end to handle that for you, like in a way that maybe the, the language model wouldn't, won't be allowed to. Um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's not quite clear to me that, that um, the, the diffusion is going to be that much faster with AI. Uh, just because consumers have, you know, been very quick to quick to use it, now, I could be wrong here. I do, I do think there are properties of, uh, you know, LMs that are useful. In particular, the fact that inference costs are are, are so low, uh, something uh, um, Zheng Dong and I have, have talked about um, relative to, you know, OpenAI kind of ate all the fixed costs for you, which is pretty nice from a diffusion standpoint. But um, uh, there, there are other reasons to believe it won't be won't be uh, something completely different. Yeah, and, and marketing departments won't have to overturn all their processes to adapt to threads, which doesn't have a desktop app, you know, um, despite it being an even faster growing product. There's a lot of nuance here. And certainly, I think there are ways as well that being within the field, having maybe more experience with these systems can cause us to, or a lot of people to overestimate what's going to happen. And as you importantly uh, said, Arjun, just because the technology exists and I can see maybe what I can do with it, that doesn't mean that it's immediately going to spread across the economy and everybody's going to figure out the same thing. If I'm like a software engineer and I see, well, this thing can generate reasonable looking code for me and then I can suddenly create so much shareholder value with this or whatever, that doesn't mean that everybody's going to be able to do the same thing. You have these very funny Twitter examples of like, a guy whose friend texted him, hey, have you heard of ChatGPT? And he's like, yes. And and then his friend responds, oh, yeah, it's it's amazing. Like, I can get it to, to write some code for a website for me, but wh where do I put the code? And so you just kind of end up with these situations where it's like, well, yes, you know, it can, it can do a lot of things. That doesn't mean that everybody is in the exact same position to receive it. And it still requires a, a complementary set of skills from the person on that receiving end, right? Until you like fully automate something away in order for that to achieve or generate something of actual economic value that gets used in the real world. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And one thing, you know, it's, it's worth keeping in mind for this, for this whole essay and especially this section is a diffusion lag doesn't necessarily mean it, it doesn't get adopted. Eventually it does, right? It does have impact. Uh, you know, uh, all these technologies were, were really transformative over the long run, right? Like 3% growth per year, that's not trivial. It just takes a long time, which spreads over the impact and, you know, uh, makes it less immediately transformative. But I guess if you were to judge transformation over the timescale of 100 years, then yes, you know, you, you, do, you do get something quite, quite significant. Arjun makes a great point on this, uh, you know, uh, um, this this kind of argument that we're making of diffusion lag takes a long time, um, doesn't necessarily mean never. And uh, it's also really important that in our piece, you know, um, note that we we never completely rule out the possibility of transformative AI. And we definitely don't rule out the possibility that you can eventually get very high growth with AI. And definitely, like, um, probably if, if we believed it was impossible, neither uh, Arjun nor me would be, uh, you know, spending a lot of our time working on AI, right? Um, so a lot of the, the really good counter arguments that we've gotten that, that we could go into more detail later um, are, are arguments in this vein. I totally agree with these things. And I think maybe a last beat before we move on to economic arguments is the all important question of data regulation. The GDPR is kind of an older example of this. But then, of course, recently we have seen lawsuits against OpenAI. Do you two want to speak to how you think about this aspect of things a little bit? 
Yeah, this is a, another one that's very uncertain. Um, courts are gonna are probably the actor that's going to determine, you know, what what fair use is, is going to look like, what the regime is going to look like. You know, New York Times suing OpenAI, Sir Silverman. There there are a couple active suits right now, um, and I, I think on, on one hand you know, maybe this won't matter that much, right? Because they'll just, if it's so economically valuable, the companies will just pay everyone for their data um, and, and and then we're all good. And, and then um, it's it's not a huge deal. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, it's it's, it's another friction. It's another uh, uh, hurdle that, that causes things to take a bit more time. Uh, for existing models that are deployed, you know, there are a lot of companies, I think basically, Almost every law firm I've talked to has been like, yes, we have banned ChatGPT internally. Um, so like, yeah, be, because they're concerned around uh, liability, if, you know, this is trained on copyrighted material, that's, that's one example. Um, and so that's, that's a reason that there's uncertainty, basically, that, that the lawsuits have created, which is going to slow down, uh, you know, the, the diffusion of the technology. And it also could mean that the, uh, you know, the, the labs will have to the next generation of models will have to retrain, right? They'll have to use a different data set. They'll have to like be very, very clear about what data they're using um, and what they're not. And they may even have to disclose to regulators potentially. Um, so, so you know, it's just another example of a thing that causes the technology to, to spread more slowly. Yeah, uh, take, taking a step back on the legal question, may, maybe the, the thing we're trying to accomplish um, here with the piece, the, the thing we want you to take away is that it's uh, really, really hard to predict when um, there will be acceptance in, in culture and in regulation of certain innovations and when there won't be. So, uh, you know, I think a, a great intuition pump for, uh, you know, progress generally is um, this this quote, uh, when we, um, you know, got nuclear power to, to work economically. And there is a, a prediction, um, uh, you know, many decades ago that eventually energy will be too cheap to meter. And like, that sounds like, you know, kind of kind of like really good, like too good to be true a little bit even. And maybe if you you present the trade off to a lot of people of uh, yeah you know it's like kind of hard to deal with nuclear waste you know um, there's like a there's like a small risk of uh, meltdowns and you know here's some bad examples that um, uh, you know uh, where you stand on nuclear power um, there there's a lot of valid positions but to to a lot of people like the the benefit of energy being too cheap to meter kind of like is is uh, weighs super heavily right that that you maybe would would expect a certain level of adoption of nuclear power just based on the trade-offs and um, just based on what, what it would make sense to um, people who believe, uh, you know, um, uh, where, where they stand on the trade-off and, and um, how, how valuable, like, energy that is too cheap to meter is to them, that um, they would, like, predict uh, an adoption of nuclear power plants that's different than what we see today. And um, here we just want to, like, caution that, you know, e- even if you think, like, you, you can you can make a very good theoretical argument for like AI will be like really really good or the the science that AI unlocks such as like like fusion power will be like really really good and um, there are downsides maybe but not that much um, it's just really hard to predict and um, that should temper your expectations as well. A, a lot of the arguments on on diffusion I think if you want to read more on it I think Kevin Bryan at the University of Toronto is uh, he did a great lecture that that I attended recently and. Uh, I think it's kind of undercovered in, in economics as a profession, um, you know, how diffusion occurs and what the different lags are, uh, but he does a good, good job of kind of enumerating them. It does seem important, I think, to note the there's almost a, a systematic unpredictability in human affairs. And when we speak about social arguments, isolating it from the rest, even if you, as you two have kind of talked about, 
abstract away this question of, well, we've got these sort of independent technical obstacles here, even if we just assume that we have passed all these hurdles and AI is able to do a lot of the things we are imagining, well, that diffusion into the economy independently then is a subject of human affairs. It is not just a technical question. And so it seems important, I think, to, as you two have said, kind of temper our expectations about what that diffusion looks like, because ultimately it is people who are making choices about how to put things into the economy, where to use them, whether to use them in the first place. We are already seeing instances of that in the choice for certain businesses to ban chat GPT outright that we've seen in a lot of cases. And so I, I think that's just kind of an important thing to keep in mind that when we are looking at each of these sets of arguments, when we're looking at the technical, when we're looking at the social, when we're looking at the economic, we can imagine that the other two have just been magically solved and then kind of analyze it independently in, in that frame of mind. Yeah, this uh, un- unpredictability of human affairs re- really like it's uh, close to my heart. Like, you know, I, f- I feel like one of the big things I learned from from being a history major is uh, that like, oh, everything's just really complex and really hard and, and really contingent, right? Like um, these really simplified theories of you say uh, this this nation state, um, it was inevitable that uh, it existed or it was inevitable that, um, you know, some um, uh, military conflict happened, for example. Um, th- this is the kind of like, language that that people use to uh you know um in, inspire uh inspire like like big movements right and and uh simplified explanations you know appeal to people um but really if you uh you know in the nitty-gritty of life like a bunch of random stuff happens you know everyone can can maybe pick own, their own examples from their own life of like oh um i'm here you know uh uh, l- largely maybe because of my own choices, but also due to a lot of random factors that I can't control, right? And so um, ap- apply to, uh, you know, AI, it's the, the same. Um, we we just want to say that, like, you think that all of these things will fall into place, happen uh, sequentially, like, is inevitable because this is such a great technology and um, we want to caution against that. And since we're giving people a bunch of examples and references that they can go talk to their families about at the dinner table, I guess I'll lift off to list off two before we move on. Neil Ferguson often kind of makes this point around how human affairs are unpredictable and that we often, in talking about things after the fact, do cast history into these narratives that, as you just said, kind of convince us that, well, these things were bound to happen when indeed it is the product of a lot of choices that were made, things could have happened very, very differently. We could have had a very different 20th century. And I guess separately, Alasdair McIntyre, although his After Virtue is more a work of moral philosophy, does have a lot of good examples, I think, of actually what he thinks are pretty systematic sorts of unpredictability in human affairs. And I feel like just kind of having a, a better grasp on that does help us take some of these really key insights about the human world and, and apply that to what's going on with AI as well. I'd love to move on to the next section of arguments that you two talk about in this article, and this is the economic arguments. We've already talked about a few, a few ideas here about the lagging cases of diffusion, about where does extra surplus go when the cost of goods go down? But let's let's dig a little bit deeper into all of this. Maybe we can just start with an overview of some of the key themes here. Yeah, I think 
Um, diffusion lags is, is a huge one, as, as you mentioned. Um, and, th and then this idea that when you have imbalanced growth, right, when you, you get massive productivity gains in some sectors, you can get weighed down by the other ones that you don't get better at. Um, that's that Baumol uh, idea that we talked about earlier. And um, I think it's worth I think it's worth dwelling that uh, on that a bit more because I think that's the, the the kind of both the overall framing for the piece and I think really comes out um, when when you bring all these examples together. So you know we talked about you know automating agriculture, um, manufacturing productivity improving, but then getting weighed down by services. Well, what about with AI? Um, so you know just to to kind of uh, make the intuition very clear, like let's say you know AI makes um, you know, writing uh, fully automatable or, um, you know, makes it way more productive um, to, you know, do healthcare diagnostics or uh, for education, right? You can, you can teach people with it. Um, I think, you know, this is an example where I think being pretty precise on all the different tasks that, you know, go on within a given job can be uh pretty, pretty uh, useful or they, they're very illuminating. So if we think about healthcare and education, just because, you know, they're two, two of the biggest sectors in the economy, um, you know, part of what you're doing is you are diagnosing a patient um, and then you are, you know, prescribing some kind of medicine. And if you basically just say it's diagnosis and prescription, you know, that seems like pretty automatable, right? Like in theory, there are already papers that sit, show that, you know, doctors are, are, are you know, maybe uh, outperformed by AIs in, in some forms of of diagnosis. Um, but then the question is like, how do you actually get people to tell you their symptom? Um, and so there's like a huge challenge in, uh, in, in medicine when you talk to doctors is like, you have to build trust, you have to build rapport, you have to you know, get someone to tell you exactly how they're really feeling. Um, and then you have to like, you know, be uh, attentive to their body language. Are they actually telling you the truth? Um, you know, if, if it's a kid, maybe their parents are there and you're going to get input from multiple people and you have to manage that. Um, and so I think like that's an example of a task that maybe isn't written down or isn't, you know, quite obvious in terms of what a doctor has to do. But it turns out it's actually really, really important. And maybe it's actually also really important that the person who is, you know, prompting the the uh, the patient and, and building trust with them is the same person doing the diagnosis, right? There's like kind of this complex interaction of all these different streams of information, some of which only a human can can get, um, and, and before you can you can uh, prescribe the right the right the right treatment. So I think, you know, this is an example of why maybe healthcare, you know, super big bottleneck on our overall economy, um, isn't like a, a, a and you might think, oh, hey, an AI would be able to do really well. It's a constrained setting with a lot of data. It, it might be difficult. I think the other one example would be education, where you know what do, what is a teacher doing, right? If you were to like write down the set of tasks, you know, on on one hand, you know, maybe all they're doing is is a uh, uh, content provision, right? They're just like saying things about the world, and then people learn them. And, and but that's like a pretty simple model of like what is actually happening inside a classroom. There's a reason why online education hasn't revolutionized the world. People still go to school. People still pay a ton for college. Um, and that's because what you're actually getting from school is a lot of other stuff. I mean, I actually, uh, when I was talking to one of my high school teachers uh, when I was visiting home the other day, and they're like a huge part of what they're doing is they're teaching people, uh, you know, how to socialize and be, you know, adults in the world, you know, interact with other people, be responsible citizens. It's kind of this like social emotional uh, uh, learning, transferring bits of culture. 
And you kind of need to model that for people. You need to be a human to do that. Um, and, and frankly, uh, going back to our previous set of arguments on, on uh, you know, the social hurdles, like will parents ever even actually trust anything other than a, a human to teach their kids? Um, maybe not anytime soon. Um, and then for younger kids, right, like, uh, um, you know, uh, elementary school students, um, a huge part of what a teacher does is just babysitting, right? Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're uh, helping kids pay attention. Uh, they're helping kids learn how to not fight with other kids. Uh, and, and these are sort of things that, you know, they get bundled together with content provision because, you know, it's useful to have the same person, um, you know, both teaching someone how to learn, who's also attentive to their emotional needs, because you can kind of switch between those two modes of interaction. And that doesn't mean that, you know, technology is not going to change education a ton. Uh, it certainly will. But you, we already have the best lectures in the world that are already uploaded to YouTube, and they're probably better than most teachers in the world. Um, but the reason why why they're not like adopted out anywhere, and it doesn't seem like AI is any fundamentally different than than that. Um, yeah, so that's just a few examples of when you when you like kind of unpack all the tasks that happen in some of our most significant sectors, you kind of start to see the bottlenecks where oh maybe AI can do parts of it, but it can't do the other parts of it, and so you're going to get weighed down by the the, the other things. So just to generalize some of the last few examples I gave, um, so OpenAI's economics team had a neat paper recently where they basically look at uh, you know the universe of U.S. jobs and the tasks that are uh, involved in those jobs using this cool database that the Bureau of Labor Statistics releases, and they basically find something like you know twenty percent of U.S. workers uh, could see um, you know fifty percent or more of their tasks being impacted by GPT four and the various software apps and tools that could be built on top of it. And that might seem like a pretty big number, um, but in terms of the, the bottlenecking framework that we just gave, um, that actually means that 80% of jobs in the US um, would have less than 50% of, the, of their tasks um, be impacted by uh, AI. And, and when framed that way, maybe it seems like not all that revolutionary anymore. And in fact, one question to ask is how unusual is this relative to past technologies? Well, another uh, recent paper suggests that, you know, we're constantly changing the types of tasks and, and jobs in an economy. Um, so maybe this isn't, you know, all that groundbreaking. So, for example, David Otter, who's an economist at MIT, has a neat paper recently showing that over the last, um, you know, about seven to eight decades, um, basically around 60 percent of jobs that we currently have today didn't exist um, you know, uh, that many decades ago. Um, so we're constantly seeing this churn of jobs and tasks. Uh, and it's not yet clear, actually, whether the rate at which these things change is uh, actually going to increase as a result of GPT. Yeah, so just to connect it with some of the other ideas that we've talked about, um, and to hammer home this idea of like bottlenecks, and um, they can pop up from anywhere and take over everything, is like, to the extent that humans don't trust uh, AI teachers, or to the extent that humans don't trust AI doctors, that the the price of those um, you know humans uh, playing those roles will um, continue to uh, increase and continue to take up a larger and larger share of GDP. Right? You might say that this is just definitional. That yeah, um, there's uh, like more demand, or they they um, the uh, uh, everything else in the economy becomes cheaper. But um, until you uh, convince people to trust them, then um, that will be seen as the scarce thing and, th and that human premium, which um, Arjun has uh, actually been um, originally written about in The Economist, will uh, slowly take over the economy and therefore bottleneck growth. Um, oh, yeah. And, and also to connect it one more time to Taylor Swift, it's like um, people want to see her specifically because she is actually the only person who is that popular, right?
I do like the idea of teachers getting paid more for their labor, although I don't love the idea of fewer and fewer people having access to human teachers. To put another beat on the education example, just because I really like it, is a lot of people are really bullish on the idea that someday we might have these AI tutors that can adapt the information that they're delivering to your particular learning style, which is indeed something that is maybe even better than the same lecture on linear algebra or something being delivered to a million people at once, even though that's already really great. But there does still feel like there's something that's kind of missing that I'm not totally convinced that an AI system is really going to be able to accomplish. And maybe maybe one framing for it is the way kind of Terry Winograd put the idea of speech acts and the way that humans interact when speaking to one another to me is that there's this sense of commitment that I give a damn about you as another human being. And when I say something, I am making a, a commitment to you. And that is very interpersonal. And if we even isolate to not even socialization, but the question of educational success, I think a lot of that can be also attributed to students who are lucky enough to have a teacher that encourages them and, and believes in them. Like I was very lucky in college to have a metaphysics professor who was like, hey, you know, you should think about studying more philosophy. And those kinds of things can be extremely meaningful for a student independently of whether the information they're getting is presented to their right learning style, because it's like, hey, there's this person that I admire or who is a role model of some sort or who I just think is really smart. And that person like believes in, in me, you know, another human being. And that can change the trajectory, I think, for a lot of people. And maybe is another way of thinking about bottlenecking, because if you already have somebody who is like, well, I do believe in myself in a lot of ways. I think that I have the capacities to achieve what I need in the academic world. Then that person is maybe already going to seek out and figure out things on their own. And so maybe an AI system makes this already fast process more efficient. But then you have this bottlenecking of, well, there are a bunch of other people who could use a teacher, somebody who, who believes in them. And these people have a lot of potential, but they just kind of need that something extra. And that something extra feels really just just something that you can only get from another person. Totally agree. And uh, just a small example to add on, like when um, ChatGPT came out and there were these, uh, you know, sensationalist tweets of like, oh, look, you can get them to write all these like cold emails for you. And that will be basically free. And so I, I really wonder, like, if you receive one of those, like how... Um, how uh, meaningful that is, is that really to the recipient and how likely you are to, you know, um, make a real connection there. I already receive emails from people where I'm like, maybe it was written by a person, but this is just so formulaic or like, I am begging you to use a first person pronoun in this entire email. So I, I can't imagine them making that any better. I was just going to add to this, which is, I think there's kind of a, almost a race to the bottom here when, with, with automation. Uh, a really funny example from Jackie Chang, who's who ran was CTO of Biden's uh, 2020 election campaign, and you know, of course, all these campaigns experiment with using new technologies to reach to voters. And actually, when texting, you know, text reach out to voters uh, came out, um, you know, she was she was working on the Clinton campaign, and at first, that had a huge effect, right? Because people were like, "Oh, hey, this new novel medium, they must like really care about me or something, right?" Um, to reach out to me by text. Uh, but then once everyone started doing it. People just default assumed that it was a robot on the other side, and now you just treat it all as spam, and it has basically zero effect size uh, when you when you run the estimates. 
I think that's an example of like a lot of the things um, in, in the business of coordination or marketing or connecting with other people. I think this is all happens all throughout business. Um, what is valuable is what is scarce, right? So when you can automate something, you actually lose like the signaling value of showing that you actually cared about someone else in an interaction. So you don't actually get a productivity gain from it. So I find that I find that to be quite quite a useful point. And I think it illustrates the broader point that in a lot of uh, settings, what we value is scarcity of other humans' attention. And as long as we you know give them higher status, then you know they're then you you can't really get a productivity gain from uh, you know automating away. You know this is. Uh, a lot of the examples we've talked about, this this prince, general principle applies, like you know, from Taylor Swift to to uh, to your point about uh, teachers' roles as raising people's aspirations and instilling confidence. There's just a number of ways where, um, like, th- there there really is a human premium to, to in, in, embedded in, in a certain task that's uh, you know very hard to to get rid of. The the novelty of uh, AI generated art and presentations and. Uh, poems about like the Wild West, whatever, plummeted for me. It really raises the bar in a lot of ways, even if you take the time to give somebody a phone call and it's like, hey, my name's Daniel. I'm with the Biden campaign or some other campaign. In most cases, people are just going to hang up because it's very obvious. It's like, well, you know, I'm reading the same script out to a bunch of you. Right. And, And that is something that could feasibly be automated. And now I guess even taking the time to like write somebody a card or something is the sort of thing that feels like, okay, you've put some time and investment into this. And that is very tied to the concept of this is another human being who, who is caring about me. I think we've gone through a lot of the, the main points of your article. And I do want to move on to some of the common and maybe some of the more powerful counter arguments that you two feel that you've run into. But before we do that, is there anything else as by the way of arguments that you two kind of want to, to wrap up this section, this section with? Uh, no, no specific argument to add, but, but maybe like one thing that we're trying to do in, in each of the bottlenecks is just uh, to, to uh, convey the sense of like, try to be really precise about the boundaries of like where your capabilities are, where progress is fast, and um, what exactly needs to happen to to uh, overcome each of these obstacles. So in, in, uh, you know, the economy and um, social factors in technical challenges, um, the more detail uh, that you get in the process, like the, the more nitty gritty you go, you find more and more examples of like just normal human innovation, right? And it's not like we're, we've started on this, uh, you know, AI uh, completely self-improving. It's like, you know, humans doing regular innovation and humans um, uh, coming across the regular challenges of human affairs, you know, um, stopping each other, like having like arguments and conflicts and uh, being um, fearful of things, being excited about things. And um, that kind of, uh, you know, interaction is, is what creates all of these um, conceptual bottlenecks that at, at the end of the day we summarize. But um, the more detail you get into each of these like diverse areas, the, the more things you will find of like details that will you know, um, make the picture a lot more complicated than just saying this is a really powerful technology. Surely it will um, cause all these uh, big effects at the end. Awesome. So let's start moving on to counter arguments. And I think we've already presented ideas related to a few of these, but let's just start with maybe the most common response that you two receive in thinking about this article or, or the general idea that there are these sorts of limits. 
Yeah, so the most common reply we get is just, uh, well, why why don't you just, um, you know, uh, a, a whole nother level down. Remember, like, we're, we're solving intelligence and we're using to solve everything else. Well, um, why can't you just, like, solve intelligence by, like, solving science or, like, solving the process of innovation? Maybe maybe that's not as hard as intelligence. And, you know, once, once we solve this process of, of, like, thinking about intelligence and, like, once we solve the process of solving intelligence, then we'll get to intelligence, which will get us to everything else. Um, and and we just want to say, like, like this kind of argument of um, however many levels down you want to go, just, like, continue reapplying the same argument over and over. And um, uh, maybe another intuition pump for this is, like, if, if you think about solving the process of innovation and the process of science, we, we have some, like, rough idea of, like, what the actual concrete process is that people try to go through. Like you get taught the scientific method in high school. Um, it's some kind of like literature review, come up with a hypothesis, test it. This is all muddled by like a bunch of philosophy of science, but there's like, there are some concrete steps written down, but, but even that is like, you, you can't really cleanly automate each of those steps. And it's not like you could just um, list out those steps really concretely, turn the wheel and then outcome new theorems, right? There's, there's still some, um, something unknown there, like some some magic in the details that uh, is encompassed by all of these social factors, all of these economic factors of research, all of the the, the technical normal human innovation that you have to do. Like maybe uh, when I call my grandparents, like they they give me some inspiration, and that uh, causes some like idea generation for me, and that's actually part of the process of science. And once again, um, things that we would have categorized as automating everything else then come back to become automating the thing that is supposed to lead us to automating everything else. And, and just to add to, to Zheng Dong's point, I, I think even if I, I do think there's a strong possibility or some possibility that, you know, some version of this does happen, right? Where you, you know, maybe automate science despite all the hurdles in, in kind of narrow domains, like for example, in certain parts of biology uh, where it's sort of self-contained or material science. And maybe you do have the robot that can do the pipetting and maybe the uh, uh, NIH and NSF make an exception for you on IRB or something. Um, but uh, the, 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 the you st- I think the, the broader point we want to get at is, yeah, this is certainly possible, but you then suffer from the, the, the next level of bottlenecks that we talk about. So like sectoral bottlenecks. So sure, you, you know, maybe you come up with a drug that increases life expectancy and that's really good, but, uh, or you, um, you know, cure a certain disease. Um, but that is still like sort of narrow in a sense, right? Like you have all the other sectors that you still haven't solved. So this goes back, like, I think the agriculture example is really good here where it's like, yeah, we sort of solved like food production at, at like the, the, the initial level where it's like still scientific. Right. Um, and that, that's the constraint on, um, you know, solving hunger is actually not the production of food. It's like the distribution and the labor and all these other, other downstream challenges. So I think like, you know, I, I do think, you know, maybe certain narrow domains of science get solved. And frankly, that probably is happening all the time in very minute and narrow ways where you have a breakthrough that solves a, a particular part of science. But then the question is, can you bring that to market? Can you, uh, you know, distribute it to everyone? Um, it, you know, what about all the other parts of, of, of the world? So I, I, so I think like um, maybe, maybe a, a restatement of our argument is, yes, this will probably happen uh, in some cases but the world is really, really big. So if you want to like actually move the needle on that, you know, GDP growth number, which is enormous, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a bit harder than just kind of solving science in narrow domains. This really illustrates what I like a lot about the argument that you two have presented and the way you've presented it, which is that, yes, the article is about why 
AI achieving transformative economic growth is really hard to achieve. But as you two have just showed, you can take these arguments and then independently apply them to any sort of automation or improvement in some kind of technology that you think is going to achieve something in particular. Because again, these questions of the social aspects, the economic aspects, the diffusion questions, those apply to almost anything you're going to want to do. And whatever particular impacts it is able to achieve, whatever its capabilities are, you can abstract that away a little bit. You can, of course, consider, as you did in this essay, the particular technical hurdles that might remain for what it is. But then abstracting all that away, you can consider all of these extra human factors, economic factors, and how they play in there. Yeah, that that might be like a good segue into uh, the kind of um, really good counter arguments that we've gotten, you know. Um, we since since we published the piece, and uh, now that we're we're talking after a while, the piece has been published. Um, we've gotten a lot of good engagement on from it, and uh, there there have been a lot of uh, good points um, brought up, and just just con- uh, sort of like building off of um, you, Daniel, uh, complimenting our argument. May- maybe that could actually be turned against us. Like um, we have we have such a versatile argument that can be applied to anything. Um, you know, may- maybe this is actually bad. Like it kind of proves too much that. How could have any innovation happened ever in history if you know our argument is just so powerful? And if you if you look at the the, the plots that we cite of like growth rate over history, um, in fact, growth has been does you know you can fit an extra financial curve since um, the industrial revolution. Like uh, uh, you know, growth used to be zero for a long time, and then all of a sudden it's uh, you know uh, uh, truly at very high rates. And so we, we, we do find um, points like this to, to be compelling, you know, um, not enough for us to say like, oh, uh, you know, transformative general artificial intelligence is, is coming very soon. Um, but, but we do take the point that in history, uh, growth has been um, at constant high rates for a while. And that really has meaningfully changed um, the, the, the lives that we day to day lead. Yeah. And I, I think, I think the, just to expand that one last time, um, if it takes a hundred years to, um, you know, solve the various bottlenecks and basically at least get past all the material, you know, solve all the material needs we have, um, maybe you, some of them are fundamental, right? Maybe some of the, the arguments around where you intrinsically just want humans, you can never really solve those. But let's say you solve everything else, like every single thing that possibly could be solved by something that is not human you solve. Um, there's no reason to believe that couldn't happen. Um, it's just that it'll take, maybe our argument is really just it'll take longer. And if someone, that could be a weakness of, 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 of the piece in a sense. Um, it's just where we're making an argument about time frame. Um, and that's, that, that, could, that could be the case. Um, and, and, and I guess then we have some consensus. <laughs> yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense to me. Another, another framing of this in the we can do things fast is people might bring up examples like Operation Warp Speed, or, or other cases where people have really accomplished something world-changing in a very small amount of time. So I, I'd love to hear how you two think about that objection. I think, yeah, there are totally cases where society does try to, you know, bring down the barriers to um, massive large-scale transformation. Um, Operation Warp through the great, is a great example. Um, and actually, you could make the argument that right now, because of uh, tensions, geopolitical tensions. There's a there's a, a book. Uh, Mark Zachary Taylor from from uh, uh, Georgia Tech has a cool argument showing empirically that uh, you know when nations perceive external threats, uh, geopolitical threats, they're more likely to invest in R and D 
in science technology and they kind of are more likely to reduce the barriers to that technology kind of being adopted you know, because it's you're, you're facing this external threats you need to uh, do everything everything it takes and you can sort of see that happening right now um with uh you know the chips and science act lots of people complaining about you know like nepa regulation um uh, maybe uh yimbyism has, has gotten some wins um and there's you know a little bit of energy around changing the, the pace at which we get new technologies and they're diffused. Um, that, that could certainly happen, right? A lot of, a lot of our hurdles are about humans, uh, you know, erecting barriers for themselves. So if we did get a big social movement around making, uh, you know, AI uh, progress really fast and getting adopted really fast, that could certainly change, um, you know, the, the, the outlook. Um, but on the other hand, like to the example of Operation Warp Speed, uh, we've tried to do an Operation Warp Speed for other things, and in a, in a minor way, it has happened for you know very very small carbon commitment uh, coming out of striped climate. But we really haven't taken the lesson from Operation Warp Speed all that seriously. It doesn't seem like there's political will to you know do something of that scale for other new technologies at least yet. Um, so I mean, you know, there's there's stuff in both directions. Yeah, and on on this counter argument, you know, um, th- throughout our discussion, we've uh, used a lot of intuition pumps, and and maybe we we think that some of the most compelling counter arguments are also in some sense intuition pumps that like uh, growth has been exponential, growth has been um, very high, uh, or we have been able to do some important things very fast. But um, again, we would stress that that uh, that that doesn't necessarily mean you should you know completely disregard all of all of these arguments that it's really hard to predict that when this is the case like when you will eventually have an example that that you can use again and when for some uh, random reason that's very hard to predict um, you don't get energy that's too cheap to meter because it turns out people really do care about um, uh, the the risks of nuclear power more than the the benefits. This is really helpful, I think, in framing things. Do you two have any other particular counter arguments you want to call out? Um, yeah, may- maybe there's uh, there's there's one kind of uh, way of viewing the piece, especially in the way we define transformative growth, that we um, we could be uh, said as, or, or or it could be argued that we're making a sort of definitional argument of like. Um, here is this number called called GDP, which is a a flawed but you know um, widely used approximation of um, what humans create that is valuable, or what prices humans put on um, things that is basically uh, uh, how much we say that we value, and um, that this number may may not actually measure what we really care about. So um, when thinking about like the human premium and and uh, humans valuing what is scarce, like imagine a world where um, every everywhere is uh, like post scarcity. Like you have all your um, material needs met, and uh, but people still um, you know value what is scarce, and so they compete with each other on uh, things that are uh, prestigious and, and give you status. Like everybody just becomes a chess player, or everybody tries to become the next pop singer. Um, this sort of thing, and um, the the GDP just measures uh, how expensive are our tickets to Taylor Swift concerts and things like that. And um, GDP here uh, used as a measure, maybe um, it would be compelling to argue that it, it, it isn't really capturing what, what we want to measure anymore. Um, and in some meaningful way, transformative AI has changed the world and created a lot of uh, value that is um, being imperfectly measured by um, our definition here. Yeah, there's actually a, a you know good science fiction book here, which I, I uh, used in that economist piece that Zheng Dong mentioned, um, you know, uh, Ian Banks. Uh, wrote this uh, great series, the, the culture series, and 
um, you know, there are these super intelligent minds that basically, um, in a sense, they're like, you know, the, your super intelligences are AGIs in, in, in our world. And, you know, they basically make the world, uh, at least the world in which the humans are in, uh, super abundant. And that, what do humans do in this world? It's not like all of them are bummed. Some of them are. Um, but, you know, it is this type of status competition and all these examples of human premiums, that some of them that we've given. Um, and in, in that world, would you say transformative AI has happened? Yes, yeah, surely, yes. But GDP growth would probably be measured at zero, right? Because you've kind of reached the end of uh, technological progress in that sense. Um, so, and maybe the provocative point that I alluded to earlier is, you know, maybe some people are already kind of kind of there where a huge share of their, their marginal dollar when technology improves is on these like status goods on experiences and things like that, that you can't really make that much more productive. I think there's, you can push back against this, right? Like people, a lot more people would want yachts and mansions and stuff like that. Most people don't have yachts and mansions. So there's still a lot of material progress uh, that I'm sure people would demand. Um, but there is also a sense in which, um, you know, maybe, maybe we're, uh, uh, that, that's already a part of our economy. And, and Ar Ar Arjun and I want to uh, uh, credit most uh, Hugh, Hugh Zhang, our, our editor at The Gradient, for, for pushing this counter-argument um, very hard and, and making us think very hard about, um, you know, whether, whether we're actually defining, framing um, things the right way. Yeah, this is, this is a good one to think on. I think a, a good place for us to close this out is with the pitch here. So we've gone through a lot of really good arguments about why the transformative growth that people think might be likely to result from the further development of AI systems is really tough. And so now that we have this argument in mind, now that we have all this knowledge, what do we do with that? Um, I would say uh, very, very simply summarized um, in, in three points, but all sort of drawing from this, the same root idea is, uh, you know, um, prior, prioritize things that are bottlenecks. And, and this could show up in a lot of ways, like uh, meaningfully how you spend most of your time every day in your work. Um, choose areas that are uh, really hard problems that are neglected and um, not everybody is, is rushing to solve. You, you, you may uh, on face, uh, at face um, worry that you're sort of uh, missing, missing the boat, um, that everybody is working on this cool thing that's progressing very fast. And um, you're missing out on that, but but actually you're you're doing some of the most important work that remains to uh, make sure that that progress uh, uh, across you know the the entire front of things we want to progress on moves forward. Um, similarly, if you um, are are sort of just observing and and you want to make a prediction about the future, maybe maybe uh, you know um, make some investment or something like that, you you should temper your expectations um, and and not let just one uh, subfield uh, take over everything you want to do. And um, specifically in, in AI risk, which is a, a big topic and a very important topic that that uh, everyone talks about, um, because Arjun and I think it's uh, uh, less likely or um, it, it's uh, really, really hard with two reallys that transformative um, AI happens, the, the kind of risks that only appear um, in that kind of world, um, we would say maybe... Uh, uh, prioritize them differently than um, near-term risks, risks that already exist and uh, risks in the medium term. If I were to just add to that, you know, I think to the Zhang point about how there's a sense of, you know, FOMO if you're not working, right, on frontier models. Um, our point is, you know, you're working on robotics and policy and biology and teacher and adopting these things and making them work well. 
all that's very essential too, right? These are all the essential yet hard to improve sectors. So, so I think in a sense, we're, we're kind of defending the common man here uh, and, and their importance in, in taking advantage of a new technological revolution. Um, you know, all these, all these different players uh, matter. Uh, and then on just one comment on AI risk, I think we're really basically pushing back on, on these kind of fast takeoff scenarios where, you know, AGIs get embedded everywhere throughout society. And then uh, the technology, you know, uh, you, you get some kind of self-improvement loop that's very general. And um, we're saying, you know, you can take all these bottlenecks as reasons to think that both it won't get uh, adopted everywhere super fast, right? Sure, there's commercial incentives to adopt it, but there's also lots of social and other, you know, regulatory and uh, other types of incentives to not adopt it that we've that we've outlined, and also automating the process of invention of uh, and so forth itself it, it is quite hard. Um, and so that doesn't mean that you shouldn't care about the the, the kind of extra scenarios of you know very powerful model going rogue that they still are worth thinking about investing and researching and it's very possible we're under investing in it it probably is given the numbers i've seen in terms of people who are actually working on technical alignment um but it also means that maybe we don't need to be super scared maybe we don't need to slow down development things like that become you should weigh you should probably downweight those arguments a little bit if you buy our conclusions yeah, uh, I, I think that's a great clarification. And, and maybe um, at the end of the day, everything sort of just falls out of bottlenecks. And uh, uh, you, dear reader, may um, find a lot of things wrong with our piece, disagree a lot on um, specific points and, and arguments that we've brought up. But um, maybe just one takeaway is, is be at the bottleneck and of what you think is important. And um, that's like the takeaway we want to leave you with. Yes, I think this is a great set of conclusions and takeaways. Once again, I, I really loved your article and I appreciate you two taking the time to speak with me and to expand on all this. I think this was a really fun, thought-provoking conversation. And I, I know I'll definitely be thinking about all of this for a while. And I hope that anybody listening to this too, first of all, thinks hard about those takeaways, but then also in thinking about whatever it is you're interested in working on or in thinking about the impact of AI on whatever it is you're doing, that you will consider some of these arguments and maybe reframe things a little bit and see what makes sense to you and what doesn't. But Arjun, Jungdong, I really appreciated this conversation. It was, it was so fun having you both on. Thank you so much. I also had lots of fun. I really enjoyed it as well. Thanks for having us. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.